these days and excited that you're in your place on this Friday night. Kind of a odd night to start a revival meeting, but uh, I think the Lord works on Friday. And uh, even when, when uh, we take the weekend or whatever, God's still at work, and I'm glad that He can work in our hearts tonight. I believe He already has, and uh, thankful for that. Well, take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 6. Isaiah chapter 6. For some, I think this might be a familiar passage, but in it, I believe there is some underlying truth that can be a great help to us tonight. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'd like to read, if I can, the first eight verses, and you follow along there if you have the Word of God in front of you. The Bible says in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. There are times in your life where you ask, where is God? There are seasons where you wonder, God, where are you? I was a junior in college and a certain young lady and I had met my freshman year. We started talking and became friends. We uh, weren't really serious, I suppose, even at that point in our lives, even after becoming good friends, but was certainly headed towards something serious. But she was graduating. Uh, she was finishing a year and a half before I would, had already signed a contract to go teach in a school in Indiana. God had worked in her life to be a teacher, and God was working in my life toward preaching and evangelism and It just seemed like those two directions weren't going to flow together. Though we didn't have really problems with each other, we just felt like this can't possibly be God's will. I mean, you're going one direction, I'm going a different direction, and you're way ahead of me, and I'm way behind you. And and it just seemed like there's no way that God could possibly be in this. And we had talked about it a number of times. One afternoon after lunch, we were talking again about it, and we decided that afternoon that we would end our relationship. I had an afternoon speech class, and it was a fun class. I always enjoyed going to that class. Everybody in there had kind of gone through speech courses together, and we always had a good time in that afternoon class. But that day, I chose a seat over by the window all by myself because I couldn't stop crying. Now, I'm not a crier, but that day, I couldn't stop crying. And all of a sudden, there was this, this hole in my life. There was this hole in my heart. And, and I, just, I just sat there crying. And, and uh, I remember sitting there as the teacher tried to teach, thinking, God, where are you? It was 1976. 
I had scheduled three revival meetings in the city of Los Angeles, California. I had never been to California, much less Los Angeles. And so I got in my car. I was driving a Volkswagen at that time, a Beetle Volkswagen, and got on the road and started driving toward California from the Midwest. Now, we didn't have interstate highways in those days. We had two-lane roads, 55 miles an hour. I had no air conditioning in that car. And as I drove for days, I began to wonder if my geography teachers had lied to me. I thought, there is no Pacific Ocean. But finally, I arrived in Los Angeles. Now, we didn't have GPS. Now, young people, you just got to work with me here. Back in those days, we had what we called maps. Now, a map was a piece of paper with lines on it representing the roads. And you had to follow the lines to get where you were going. And I had this map in my lap trying to find the city of La Puente, California. I mean, in the heart of L.A. And I had never been in a city that large, and I'm trying to find this place. And finally, about 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, I arrived at this church. I was just happy to be somewhere and happy to start a revival. And and I I got out of my car. There was a man working on some flower beds, kind of sprucing the place up. And I made my way over to him and introduced myself, and he introduced himself as the pastor. And after we introduced ourselves, he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm, I'm... here to hold a revival. He said, I didn't know anything about that. Here I was in the city of L.A. I didn't know a soul. I didn't have a cell phone. Nobody had a cell phone. I didn't have a credit card. Nobody had a credit card. I had $36 in my pocket. And now I'm on my own for six days. I got back in my car after telling him thanks and I I didn't know really what to do, but I started driving down the street from whence I had come, and I drove about maybe 10, 12 blocks, something like that, it seemed, and I saw a couple of hotels next to each other. I affectionately called them flea bag hotels, but one of them looked a little better than the other, and so I, I parked and went in the front door of this hotel, and lady was at the desk. I said, ma'am, I, I think I'm going to need to see the manager. She picked up the phone, and made a call, and pretty soon this gentleman showed up at the front desk. He said, how can I help you? I said, well, sir, I, I'm going to be in your town here for the next six days, and I need a place to stay. He said, no problem. I said, well, there is a little problem. I said, I only have $36. He thought for a minute. He, he reached under that, that desk, and he pulled out a ring of keys. He said, follow me. I followed him out a back door into a, a courtyard area. Well, it really wasn't a courtyard. It was, it was a, a, an area between buildings, but it was full of old dressers and old beds and just kind of a junky area. And we made our way through some tall grass and all this junk. And he took one of those keys and opened an iron door and he pushed it back. And we walked into a room that was maybe about 12 by 12 and had a tile floor. It had a military cot in one corner with a mattress on it. And there was a, there was a shower, there was a sink, there was a commode and there was a a metal folding chair. He said, it's all yours, six bucks a night. I gave him my $36. He closed the door. When he closed that door, I saw something out of my left peripheral, and I, I looked in that direction, and up above the door, there was a little shelf. And on the shelf was a small television set. And I remember thinking, well, at least I have a TV. And I went over, and I, I clicked it on. And when it came on, it was showing snow. Just these, these white movements across a black screen. 
And I thought, well, I don't want to watch snow. I came from the Midwest. I'm here in California. I don't want to watch snow. So I, I turned the channel, and the next channel was showing this same program. All the way around, all 13 channels on that little black and white TV were showing snow, static. And I remember clicking that off and sitting on that bed thinking, God, where are you? It was about 1983. I was traveling now with my family. I had a wife and two children, and we were pulling a, a trailer around the country, holding revivals at churches and living in our trailer. And we arrived in Warrenville, Illinois, western Chicago suburb, and pulled into the pastor's home. The pastor was a friend of ours. We had held meetings for him in other places. He was a church planter, and he would go to a town, usually stay about two or three years, get a church started, and then he would call a pastor, and he would move out to the next town. And he was in Warrenville, and we arrived and got the trailer set up there in his front yard of his house. And he had seven children and, and just a, a, a large family. And, and uh, we kind of got reacquainted that Saturday night. We were starting the church in an elementary school building. Now, you've heard of Murphy's Law. Well, that was the law that week. I mean, if it could go wrong, it went wrong. Everything went wrong. The janitor never showed up. We'd have to break in the building just to have the meeting. I mean, it, just one thing after another. And about Wednesday, I, I, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, this isn't going too well. The pastor's really discouraged. His wife's discouraged. His kids are discouraged. And I said, I, I don't know what the love offering will be this week, but I, I think the pastor needs it worse than we do. And I think, I think maybe whatever it is, we should just give it to their family. Well, my wife said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. I said, well, let's pray about it. You know, let's, let's, let's think about this. So the next two days, we, we prayed about that. And Friday, we concluded that's what we would do. Well, the Friday night service didn't go any better than Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, and had a little, little crowd and not much happening. And we got back to the house and he invited us in. And we played some games with the kids. And, and then after we'd eaten some popcorn and some Kool-Aid, he reached in his pocket and he pulled out an envelope. And he said, Brother Gash, this is the love offering. And we wish we could have done more. And, and I began to give a speech. And I, I, for the first time in my life before since, I opened that envelope and I pulled that check out in the presence of the pastor. And as I was turning it over to sign the back of it, to give it to him, I noticed the amount. It was $250. Now, in 1983, that was a lot of money. That was a huge offering for a week of revival. But I'd already decided what I was going to do, so I, I put it in my hand, I, I signed the back, I said, Pastor, uh, the Lord wants us to give this to your family. Well, he protested, tried to stuff it back in my pocket, and I said, no, you're not stealing the blessing here. It's yours. And he started crying. His wife started crying. The kids all started crying, and I got out of there. There's no sense hanging around that stuff. But we went out to the trailer, and you know, when you obey the Lord and what he tells you to do, you feel really good about it. I slept like a rock. We got up the next morning, hooked up that 16,000-pound trailer to our truck, and we were heading to St. James, Minnesota. And uh, we got on the freeway and up through Chicago and into Wisconsin. We got to La Crosse, Wisconsin. And both of my fuel tanks were on empty. I had two 20-gallon tanks of gas, and they were both on empty. And I still had over 100 miles to go. And I said, Lord, I need gas. And the Lord said, well, get some. I said, well, that's easy for you to say. But I don't have any money. Gave all my money to the pastor in Chicago. 
I still didn't have a credit card or a debit card or anything like that. I didn't have any money in a checkbook. I, I said, Lord, I, I don't have any money. He said, get gas. I said, Lord, I can't, I can't get gas without money. He said, get gas. Now, I had heard stories of preachers driving into a gas station, filling their tank up with gas, and somebody else paying for it. I didn't have that kind of faith. <laughs> I was operating on a cash basis. I said, Lord, I don't have any money. And the Lord said, you do too. And I remembered in the trailer, we, we had this yellow bucket. We had bought this little sand bucket for the kids to play in the dirt with. And the handle broke, I think, the first day we had it. And, but the kids wanted to keep that bucket. It was kind of a yellow fluorescent color. And they wanted to keep that bucket. And so we did. And they were throwing our pennies in there. Every time we'd get some change, they'd say, let me have the pennies. And they'd, they'd throw it in this bucket. And it was about three quarters full of pennies. The Lord said, use that. I pulled into a gas station in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and bought 40 gallons of fuel with pennies. I'll never forget the expression of the guy who counted them two by two on that glass counter. Nor will I forget the expression of the seven people standing behind me waiting to buy their gas. But the Lord miraculously got us to St. James. We got to a little Manor Baptist Church, a little white clapboard building on the edge of town by the fairgrounds, and got set up, the pastor, wonderful man, and church running about 30 people, none of which were over were under 65 years of age, a rather elderly church. The pastor was working 50 hours a week in a lumber yard trying to put food on the table, but he was glad we were there and we were glad to be there. We had Sunday school, Sunday morning, morning service, and afterwards nobody said anything about lunch, so we, we went out to the trailer and I thought, well, they'll, they'll feed us tonight and and uh, we'll scrape a little stuff together. We had a few canned goods. We put it all together, and we ate a little bit, thought they'll feed us tonight. Well, we went into the evening service. I preached, and afterwards, the pastor said, well, i got to get up at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning, so I'll see you tomorrow night at 7. We went to bed hungry. The next morning, I was out washing my truck and trailer down. I always tried to get all that road grime off on Monday morning, and I was washing that trailer, and I was back behind that thing, and I was having a pity party. I said, Lord, where are you? I know I did exactly what you told me to do in Chicago, and you got us here. But, Lord, where are you now? I mean, I got a wife and two kids in there, and your Bible says, if I don't take care of them, I've denied the faith, and I'm worse than an infidel. I can fast this week. I don't need to eat, but they do. God, where are you? There are going to be some times in your life, maybe you're in one right now, where you're going to say, Lord, where are you? And I think Isaiah's in one of those moments. The king has died. The nation is left without a leader. The nation is vulnerable to an enemy attack. And here's the prophet Isaiah wondering, Lord, what now? What do we do now? There will be seasons in your life where God will seem to have vacated His throne. Now, we know from the Bible that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. But like the songwriter wrote, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And when God seems absent in our life, I believe that Isaiah, sort of in a subliminal way in this passage, shows us three locations where we can always find God. 
When God seems distant, when our prayers seem to be falling off the edge of our lips to the floor, when it seems like God has, has vacated His throne, there are three places, three locations we can go to and always find Him. The first is seen here in verse number 3. As Isaiah gets a glimpse of this throne of God, he sees these angelic beings, these seraphims, the Bible says each of them had six wings. With twain they covered their feet, with twain they covered their face, with twain they did fly. And one of them, in verse number three, cries, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Did you know that God is always in the holy place? And when God seems absent in our life, we got to get back to the holy place. Now, Holy is a word that qualifies everything that God is. God's a God of love, but His love is a holy love. God is a God of wrath, but His wrath is a holy wrath. God is a God of justice, but His justice is a holy justice. Everything that God is, is qualified by the word holy. Back in Exodus chapter 15, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? In the Psalms, in chapter 99, in verse 9, uh, the Bible instructs us to worship toward His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. In Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4, the revelator says, Who who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Holy. Now, let's remind ourselves, holy and unholy cannot coexist. Righteousness and unrighteousness cannot coexist. See, if we want God's presence, and we want God's power, and we want God's provision, and we want God's protection, we got to stay in the holy place. In Leviticus chapter 11... God told His people, the nation of Israel, He said, I am the Lord that bringeth thee out of the land of Egypt. Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord thy God, am holy. Now, we live in a world that's unholy. We live in a world that's polluted with sin. We live in a world that's constantly tempting us and trying to pull us away from the holiness of God. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and they struggled with that. Corinth was a wicked city, and as Paul writes these letters to the church at Corinth, he's addressing some pretty serious worldliness in their life. But remember what he said in in, in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, he said, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of the Lord. How hard are we working at perfecting holiness? There's a couple teams practicing right now for the Super Bowl. Well, why are they practicing? They're pretty good. I mean, they made it this far. They don't need to practice. Oh, they do. Why? Because they're trying to perfect those plays. They're trying to perfect those skills in order to win that prize of the Lombardi Trophy. Someone who plays the piano has to practice. You don't just walk up to a piano and start playing it. You've got to practice. Uh, if your business is going to succeed, you've got to follow some business practices. You've got, to, you've got to work at it every day in order to perfect your product and perfect your sales and, and all of those things. How hard are we working at perfecting holiness? 
In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, the Bible says, Follow peace and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. See, when we get away into this, th- these things in the world, all of a sudden that distance between us and God begins to increase. and We've got to come back to that holy place. God's always there. But notice a second location. As Isaiah gets this vision of the throne, what's his response in verse 5? He says, then said I, woe is me, for I'm undone. His response was one of humility. God is always in the humble place. One of my fast becoming favorite verses, and I have several. But it's in Isaiah 66 and verse 2 where it says in part, let To this man will I look. Now, now I don't know about you, but I need the Lord to look my way. I need God's blessing. I need God's favor. I can't be what I'm supposed to be. I can't do what I'm supposed to do without God. Without Him, I can do nothing. So I can't be the right kind of Christian, or the right kind of husband, or the right kind of dad, or the right kind of granddad, or the right kind of staff member, or the right kind of preacher. I I can't do anything without Him. So I've got to have His favor. And the Bible says, to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. Are you in the humble place tonight? I remind us, God doesn't hang around His abominations. These six things that the Lord hate, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look. Proverbs 16, 5 says, Every man that is proud in heart is an abomination unto the Lord. Are we in the humble place tonight? Psalm 138, verse 6, it says, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Think about that. Though the Lord be high. Well, I guess he's pretty high. You can't go any higher than God. He's the creator of the universe. He's God. Well, who does God respect? Now, if I ask you, who do you respect? Well, it would depend upon the context of our conversation. If we were talking about sports, someone might say if they're if they're in high school, well, I I look up to this kid in college that can play. He plays my position, and I just admire him. And boy, if I could perfect my skills like him, I would be good. Or a college player looks up to a professional player. A, 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 a starting out pianist looks up to somebody that's taken more lessons than they have, or had had more teaching and and has perfected those skills. Someone in business looks up to a, a model business and says, "That's what we're trying to become." You see, when we respect, we look up. Well, who does God look up to? Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. You see, God resisteth the proud. He gives grace to the humble. God resists when when we get proud in our own heart, when we build ourselves up, when when we're looking at ourselves as important. God rejects us by humility and fear of the Lord, our riches and honor and life. When I was a boy growing up in church, I, I used to hear the name Evangelist Paul Levine. Paul Levine. 
Preachers would talk about him and uh, talk about his preaching. And We never had him at our church, and yet preachers would talk about Paul Levine. And I remember as a kid thinking, boy, I hope someday I get to meet Paul Levine. He sounds like a, like a wonderful man. He sounds like a wonderful preacher. And I remember thinking that, and, and, uh, but I, I, I never met him. Paul Levine was saved in Waterloo, Iowa at the age of four. He was called to preach at the age of four. Don't underestimate what God can do in children's lives. In fact, Paul Levine finished high school at the age of 15 and went straight into evangelism. Couldn't drive a car. (laughs) Had to walk, hitchhike, take public transportation. But Paul Levine began to preach all over the state of Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, all over the upper Midwest there. By the time he was 17, he had a singer traveling with him named, named Bob Finley. Bob Finley was completely blind. And these two men traveled the Midwest for years together, playing their mandolins and singing and preaching. If you go to any one of those states I just mentioned tonight in any church and you say, Paul Levine, you'll have somebody come up to you and say, I got saved under Paul Levine. Happens to me all the time. Paul Levine had a radio broadcast out of Waterloo, Iowa called Bible Echoes. And every day for years preached on the radio, the gospel. He started a ministry called Bible Tracks Incorporated and printed thousands of tracks in hundreds of different languages. I was in a Flying J truck stop the other day, which is my second home, and I, I needed to use the restroom, and I walked in the restroom of the Flying J. I opened the stall door, and two tracks fell on the ground. One was in English, one was in Spanish, both printed by Bible Tracks Incorporated. Still in existence today. Paul Levine. Man, I wanted to meet him. I wanted to hear him preach one day. Well, it was... 1981, and I was sitting in my trailer in Danville, Illinois, at the Faith Baptist Church, holding a revival there. And one day, the secretary ran out of the church building, came to the trailer, and knocked on my trailer door. We still didn't have cell phones. You know, people today say, wouldn't it be cool if somebody could invent a cord that could attach your phone and to the wall? That way we wouldn't lose it. That's already been thought of. So when you got a phone call in those days, you had to go in the church and take the call. You told people where you were going to be, and they would call you at that church. So I ran in the church, took the call, and the voice on the other end introduced himself as Dr. Bill Rice III at the Bill Rice Ranch in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, I had heard of Bill Rice III, but I, I, I didn't know him. We'd never met. I'd heard his dad preach, Bill Rice Jr. I'd heard his uncle preach, John R. Rice. I'd heard his other uncle preach, Joe B. Rice. I'd heard his brother preach, Pete Rice. I I knew the Rice uh, family, the Sword of the Lord, the Bill Rice Ranch. I I knew those names, but I I didn't know any of them. And he said, Brother Gatch, we've never met, but I've heard about you. And and, uh, as you know, we have the ranch here, and we have youth weeks during the ranch. And I'd like to invite you, if you'd have the week open, to preach a youth week in, in the summer of 1983, two years away. He said, do you have your calendar? Well, I did. I opened it up, and sure enough, I had the week available. I said, I'd be honored to come. We, we, we penciled it in. I said, I'll send you a letter. And man, when I hung up that phone, I was on cloud nine. I mean, I thought I'd made the all-star team. I'm preaching at the Bill Rice Ranch. Now, it wasn't the teenagers I was excited about preaching to. 
The Bill Rice Ranch started in 1953. Bill and Kathy Rice, an evangelist, and his wife had a daughter whose name was was um, uh, Kathy, and she was deaf. She was born deaf. And so Bill and Kathy Rice went and bought a piece of ground outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, 1,500 acres, and they started the Bill Rice Ranch so that deaf people could hear the gospel in sign language. They established the ranch. Well, they had deaf weeks, but they needed some hearing weeks as well. They invited teenagers to come on a weekend or a family couple's retreat or whatever. And they started the first youth week in the summer of 1953. And the very first preacher of the first youth week at the Bill Rice Ranch was Paul Levine. And every youth week after that, between 1953 and about 1995, Dr. Levine preached every youth week. Some summer, six or seven weeks at that ranch. Well, as the, as the youth camps got larger, they started inviting a second preacher to preach with Dr. Levine to kind of take some of the load. And I was going to be that second preacher. I thought, I'm going to get to finally meet Paul Levine. Man, I couldn't wait. Well, finally that day came and we got to the ranch. And uh, the first service on the schedule said Dr. Paul Levine was preaching and I couldn't wait. I went down to the John R. Rice Auditorium about 10 minutes before the service and walked in a side door. There were 1,400 teenagers sitting in that auditorium. 1,400 teenagers. Not the adults, not the sponsors, the counselors. 1,400 teenagers. I didn't even look at them. I thought, I wonder if I'm going to meet Paul Levine. I got barely in the door, and a man came over, and he stuck out his hand, and he said, Welcome to the ranch, Dr. Getsch. He said, My name is Bill Rice III. We still had never met. And he said, So glad you're here. And of course, I was glad to be there and acquaint myself with him. He said, uh, uh, Come up on the platform. Well, I looked on the platform, and the platform was about eight steps up. It was quite high. It was rather large. But there was nothing on the platform except for a piano on that end and a pew that went all the way across the platform. It had to be about 30 feet long, one, one pew. And there was nobody on that platform except for one man who was sitting on the end of that pew. His name was Paul Levine. I'd see the picture of him. That was him. And he had his Bible open and a steno notebook sticking out of it, and he was, he was writing. And I thought, he's writing his message. He's preaching tonight. He's, he's still writing his message. And Dr. Bill said, come on up on the platform. I want you to meet Dr. Paul. Oh, wow. I get to meet him now. I, I, I followed him up the steps. And we got up there. And Dr. Bill said, uh, Dr. Paul, th- this is John Gatch. And Dr. Levine, he closed his Bible in that notebook. And he stood up. And he grabbed my hand with both hands. And he said, Brother Gatch. He said, I'm so glad to meet you. He said, I can't wait to hear you preach. I said, hear me preach. I'm here to hear you preach. He said, here, sit by me. Sit by me. I sat down next to him. He opened his Bible. And that notebook spilled out. And he started writing again. I was trying to read his sermon. But I couldn't read his handwriting. The, sermon, uh, the service started. And we had the singing. And finally it came time to introduce Dr. Paul. And Dr. Bill got up and he said, all right, teenagers, tonight we get to hear Dr. Paul Levine. Dr. Levine's been preaching here since 1953. Every youth week we've ever had. Dr. Levine has preached. He said, Dr. Paul, how many sermons have you preached here at the ranch? Well, Dr. Levine, he wasn't even listening to the introduction. He's still writing a sermon. 
But he heard his name and his head kind of popped up and he said, uh, 1,212. And Dr. Bill said, think of that, young people, 1,212 times. This man has preached in this auditorium to teenagers just like you. And he went on to introduce them. And Dr. Paul, he punched me in the ribs and he said, I really don't know how many times I preached. He said, all I know is I ran out of sermons a long time ago. (laughs) That was Dr. Paul. One time, a few years later, we were together again at the ranch, and the week wasn't going real well. Kids weren't real responsive. It was Thursday night, and it was Dr. Paul's turn to preach, and he was burdened. You could tell he was burdened. We were sitting, he always had me sit by him, All through that song service, he's writing notes and praying. I could tell he was just praying for God to break that thing open. And Finally, during the last special number, I I just kind of lightly set my hand on his knee and I said, Dr. Paul, I'm praying for you. He kind of leaned into me. He said, oh, thanks, Brother Gadget. He said, you know, people tell me, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. I do. But he said, I don't trust the devil. And it was things like that that he would say to me that began to shape my life. I don't remember the year. I was asked to do a, a session at a conference in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Just one session. The conference was all week, but they just wanted me to do one session one afternoon from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock. A three-hour session. Can you imagine? Right after lunch. I don't think they liked me much. And everybody had to come to that session. It was the only one offered during that hour and, or that three hours. And, and I, I did my best to, to, to teach them something. And, 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 and when it was done at 4 o'clock, I, I just said, you, you can go. They were going to go on to dinner and come back for the great service that night. And my job was done. I mean, I had done my session, and I was going to stay for the rest of the week. But my job was done. And I gathered up my things, and everybody was going out the back. And I started down off the platform. As everybody was going out the back, there was one man coming down the middle aisle. He was in his 90s now, feeling his way from pew to pew. You see, he was legally blind now. His wife was already in heaven. His body racked with cancer. In fact, in just two more weeks, he would go and join her. But he had that Bible open, and that steno notebook hanging out of it. A pen in his hand as he was feeling his way down those pews. It was Dr. Paul. And I jumped off that platform. I said, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul, I didn't know you were here. You know what he said? He didn't say, hey, Brother Gash, how you doing? You know what he said? He pointed at that notebook. And he said, I missed letter E under point five. (laughs) What was letter E under point five? I'm thinking, Dr. Paul, you don't need it. I mean, you're going to go to heaven in two weeks. Just go over here and just wait, you know. I said, oh, Dr. Paul, you don't need it. Tears just began streaming in his face. He said, Brother Cash, I want to love God more. I want to know my Bible better. Please tell me what the letter E is. The point five. That was Dr. Paul. The humble place. Are you there? That's where God is. He's in the holy place. He's in the humble place. The 
Then look at verse 8. He's in the harvest place. I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. Friends, when God seems vacant, go grab some tracks. Pass them out. God will meet you there. Because He's always in the harvest place. When, when you feel like God's abandoned you, uh, uh, call the pastor. Say, Pastor, who's in the hospital? Who, who, who's shut in right now that I could be a blessing to? I just want to call them. I just want to go by and see how they're doing. Friends, God is always in the harvest place because He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Say not either yet four months and then come with harvest. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They're white, all ready to harvest. I love the Christmas season. I love going to church during the Christmas season because no matter how many times you hear the Christmas story, it's just fresh. You know, the Lord's birth, the virgin birth, and those early days, the shepherds, and then a little bit later, the wise men, and Simeon, and Anna. We hear sermons, and we, we, we hear them every year, but we, we, we rejoice that Jesus Christ came to this earth. But you know, then the Bible, after a few chapters in the Gospels, talking about His birth, and maybe the first few months, then it just goes dead silent until he's about 30 years old. And he starts his earthly ministry. Except for one time. Do you remember it? How old was he? 12. And you remember his parents, they took this, this boy, Joseph and Mary's earthly parents, they took him up to Jerusalem to a feast. And they traveled in a company of people. We don't know how many, but they traveled in a company, it says. Apparently for maybe security or maybe accountability or maybe just fellowship. But they, they, they went together up to Jerusalem and they, they celebrated the feast. And Jesus is there with them as a 12-year-old boy. And then after it was over, they started back for home. And they got a day's journey. And suddenly they realized, we've lost God. How do you lose God? Now, you, you got to kind of think through these stories in the Bible. Can you imagine this conversation? Joseph, have you seen Jesus? Uh, no, Mary, I, I haven't. At least not today. Well, what do you mean, Joseph, you haven't seen him today? When's the last time you saw him? Oh, why? I saw him when we left Jerusalem. Left Jerusalem? That was, that was 24 hours ago, Joseph. Where is Jesus? Well, I don't know, Mary. I thought he was with you. What do you mean you thought he was with me? He's not with me. I thought he was with you. And they panicked. And they began to ask everybody, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And suddenly they thought, we left him at church. <laughs> you know, we, we left him back in Jerusalem. So, man, they hurry back. And sure enough, there he was the temple. And he's answering the questions of the scholars about the Bible. Now, the Bible records the next words of Mary. But it doesn't record the emotion. Mary says, Son, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Where hast thou been? Those are the words. But I don't think that was the emotion. Right? You ever lost your kid at Walmart? <laughs> Son, are you okay? Are you okay? Where were you? We were worried sick. We thought something. You know, I'm sure Mary. And do you remember what Jesus said? How is it you sought me? 
Wist you not that I must be about my father's business? You should have known where to look. I'd be in the harvest place. He's always about the harvest. You see, he wants the whole world to be saved. He's not willing that anybody would perish, but that all should come to repentance. Friend, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I got good news for you. He wants to save you. He loves you. He wants you in heaven. He's not willing that any perish. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He died for all. So he's always about the harvest. So when God seems absent, we've got to get back to the holy place. Is there anything in our life tonight that's not holy? We've got to get back to the humble place. Well, I'll tell you, I think our nation needs a good dose of humility. But I think we in our churches need a good dose of humility. And then we've got to get back to the harvest. By the way, that girl I broke up with that afternoon in college, We've been married now for about 47 and a half years. But at that point in my life, I was not ready for marriage. There was some purging in my life that needed to happen before I could enter into something as sacred as marriage. That week in L.A., in that hotel, six days, that door never opened. There was no phone in that room. The TV didn't work. I never ate a bite of food. I never went outside. Just me and God in the humble place. See, when I came out of college, I'm ready to preach in the stadiums. Lord, where are they? Where's the 20,000? I got three sermons. Let me at them. You know, I was ready to go. God said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no. Before we do that, we got to go to the humble place. And I've been in thousands of revivals since, but that was the best revival I've ever been in. Just me and God in the humble place. That Monday morning behind my trailer in St. James, I'm back there having a pity party, and all of a sudden a car pulls in the driveway. It was a 1954 Ford, an old antique car. And behind the wheel was a man who weighed well over 400 pounds who they affectionately called Tiny. Now, Tiny was not a member of that church, the Manor Baptist Church in St. James. He lived 40 miles away. But he and his wife and two little girls had come the night before to the services. And afterwards, had asked the pastor if they could talk to my wife and I. We sat on the front row with Tiny and his wife, and they wept. They said, Brother Gatch, we don't have a church in our town. This is the closest church to us. But with our little girls, we don't know if we should try to drive 80 miles to a service or whether we should try to start a church in our town. We don't, we don't know anything about that. And I sat there, my wife and I, we sat there, and we, we were just young. We didn't know really what to tell them much, but we cried with them and prayed with them and tried to encourage them. He pulled in. And he saw me behind the trailer, and he rolled his window down. And he said, hey, Brother Gatch, do you need any food? Now, who pulls into a parking lot and asks a question like that? I put my tools down. I kind of wandered over to the car, and I said, what are you talking about? He said, do you need any food? I said, well, sure. He said, jump in the car. Get in the car. I went around, got in the car. He started driving back to his house, 
40 miles. We're driving along. I said, Tony, what's this all about? He said, I work for the Jolly Green Giant. I'm looking at this guy. He weighs over 400 pounds. I'm thinking, are you the mascot or what, 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 do, you, what do you do? I didn't know it at the time, but St. James is in one of the most fertile valleys of all of the United States. And there are tens of thousands of acres of vegetable farms all over that area. And Del Monte, Jolly Green Giant, they have these processing plants. And this man is an executive with Jolly Green Giant. He said, Brother Gadget, I came out of my house this morning to my garage. I got four freezers in my garage full of food. I mean, I bring stuff home from work that's mispackaged, it's mislabeled. I bring it home and throw it in these freezers. They're plumb full of food. And he said, I I came out and I I saw those freezers and I thought, I wonder if that preacher needs some food. Well, I'm sitting there listening to this and I'm thinking, Lord, this is great. This is amazing. This is really something. But, Lord, green beans? (laughs) I mean, I'm hungry, but broccoli? Come on, Lord, could you speak to a beef farmer or something? (laughs) We got to that house. He flipped that garage door up and and opened those freezers. And I didn't know it at the time. But Jolly Green Giant made lasagna, Swiss steak. He started loading that old 54 Ford up with, with box after box after box of food. We got back to the church. We had to borrow the pastor's freezer, the church freezer. Our freezer was full. By the time we got to Thursday and Friday night, we were giving away food just to have somebody come hear me preach. You know what God said? He said, son, you keep ministering to people on the front row. I can feed you. The hardest place. The humble place. The holy place. Do we need to get back? He's there. I was hiking with a pastor through a, through a canyon in Lander, Wyoming one day. It's a beautiful canyon. Very narrow, high walls on both sides, a river running, wildlife jumping up everywhere. We're hiking along. It's a Sunday afternoon. We're hiking along this river, and this guy was a, a, a Marine a veteran. Boy, he was, he was into it and moving along, and I'm doing everything I can to keep up with him. And after about a mile and a half into that canyon, suddenly I realized the river was not there. I mean, we started hiking along this river, and there was no way out of that canyon. There were no outlets, and and I thought it didn't dry up. We were going the same direction as the river. And I said, Pastor, what happened to the river? He kind of looked over his shoulder. He said, Ah, don't worry about it. We'll see it again. We hiked another mile and a half, and all of a sudden, the river was there again. And I stopped. I said, Pastor, come on, stop, stop. I'm, I'm getting tired, but I'm not hallucinating yet. There was a river. Then there wasn't a river. Now there's a river again. Explain. He said, Brother Gash, the river was here the whole time. It just runs underground for a mile and a half. Wow, did I learn something that day. Sometimes you can't see God. You can't see what He's doing. Sometimes His voice is a little distant. But He's there. He never leaves us or forsakes us. But sometimes we move away. And God says, come on back. Draw nigh to me. I'll draw nigh to you. He'll meet you in the holy place, in the humble place, 
in the harvest place. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we need you tonight as we sang a moment ago. We know we can't do what we're supposed to do without you. And so, Lord, we need your presence. We need your power. We need your provisions. And, Lord, I pray that you would show us where we've taken those steps away from the holy place, the humble place, the harvest place. May we make a move tonight back in those directions. And Lord, we know that you'll be faithful to meet us there, meet our needs, and provide all that we need, for you are all-sufficient. And so work now in these moments of invitation. As heads are bowed, let's stand quietly to our feet if we can, and our pianist will play a song there of her choice. If God speak to your heart tonight, would you take a moment there at your seat or here at this altar? Sometimes a, a physical move to our knees or to an altar kind of indicates in our heart that I'm changing positions. I'm making a decision. Perhaps this altar would represent that holy place tonight in your life, or that humble place, that harvest place. Just come and take a moment with the Lord. If you're here tonight and you do not know Christ as your Savior, He'd love to meet you tonight. You'd never regret meeting Him as your Savior. He loves you. He wants to save you. He will. He'll come to Him. And we'd be glad to help you. God wants us to come just as we are, as the song says. We don't have to fix anything first or get some things in order. We can just come, just like we are. If we're unholy or proud or apathetic, God says, it's all right. Come on back. Come back to the holy place, the humble place, the harvest place. I'll meet you there. says to those that are lost without Christ just come just come to me come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden I'll give you rest there's no rest to the wicked they're like the troubled sea they cannot rest God says come to me I'll give you rest in your soul I'll give you a peace you're on your way to heaven 